We're going to be back in Exodus 7 this morning, be considering a much larger portion of Scripture, uh, all the way through uh, chapter 8, verse 19. Um, So I encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we uh, make reference to the text as we go. We know from last week the storm is coming. Uh, There is the spiritual battle lines have been drawn between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt, who are no gods at all. Only one will be left standing. Only one has all power and authority and is worthy of worship and obedience. So really the battle is over before it begins. Um, But Pharaoh and the people of the land don't know this. We know this. Uh, So if that's true, then what might the Lord uh, need to show us and be showing us uh, through these events? And the Lord has already shown that He has all power and authority over the serpent Uh, The Egyptians could look at those serpents all day long and they would not save, they would not provide. Um, But the God who swallows them up is the God who saves, the God who provides for His people. Uh, But Pharaoh ignores this sign, he doesn't uh, heed the warning. And so God is going to, He's going to tighten the screws, just progressively ramp things up so that Pharaoh and the people of Egypt really are, are without excuse. Uh, There would be no mistake who is uh, God, who is exalted over all the earth. Uh, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. That's the message. It's going to sound louder and louder uh, as we uh, proceed through these chapters. So we're not going to read straight through uh, the account this morning, but I do encourage you to to do that either on your own or with a small group uh, in study, really to get the flow of the story and the details uh, from uh, starting in 7.14 here. So let me pray as we move into this. Consider the good word of our God. Lord God, you are so very near to us by the presence of your Spirit. Lord, you are near in your living word. It is in our hearts. It is on our lips. You have given to us life and death, good and evil. Lord, as you impart this word to us, grow our understanding grow our ability to apply this word faithfully. May that which is spoken be faithful and clear from your word. Guide us now, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. My youngest daughter, Lydia, was learning some Taekwondo over here at Living Defense uh, this last fall. And every now and then, I guess every few months, they would have a day for testing or an opportunity to test. And I I was able to see one of these uh, testing days, and it's fun to watch you know, different students go through their patterns, and that's a bit nerve-wracking as you watch them try to remember the 15, 20 different moves that they have to go through. And then the older students would, would have a pattern, and some of them were actually required to break the board. Uh, they'd have to, to kick, one was a kick, another one was to, to throw their elbow and snap uh, the board. And as, as you're watching this, you're wondering, you know, is the board going to snap or is their arm going to snap? You know, it's, it's a little... Uh, makes you wince. And for one student that I saw, you know, it was no problem. Just one and done. Boom, boom. One board, two board. Um, but several of them really struggled with this. You know, four or five, they would hit the board and hit it and hit it. And finally they had to, had to wait. They had to, because they had to strike these boards in just the right, you know, just the right place with just the right form, momentum, uh, in order to be successful. And so as we move from Exodus 7.14, really through the end of chapter 12, the Lord is going to strike the Egyptians. Uh, And these strikes will 
will hit them, they'll be experienced in just the right way, just the right measure that God intends. And we're familiar with these events, uh, knowing them as the plagues, which is a fair uh, description of what, is, uh, what we see happening. But Jewish tradition really focused on how these events were initiated. So Moses or Aaron, you know, with a staff of God in hand, stretching it out as he strikes the water or the land or the creatures. Uh, the strikes are signs of God's power and His sovereignty, affirming who He is and the glory that's due to His name. We see this purpose in the signs in the Old Testament moving right into the New Testament. Uh, John's Gospel is a great example of this. In fact, the first 12 chapters of John are often considered to be the book of signs, showing the authority and the power of Jesus as the Son of God. Signs showing uh, the glory which demands a response. So the signs we see here, the strikes upon Egypt, are going to serve in that same purpose. So we're going to look at these signs, these strikes in Egypt in groups of three. Uh, it's all one literary unit, so you should read it all together. It should probably be one sermon from chapter 7 to chapter 10 at least. Uh, but there's progression here. The signs are becoming more problematic, more destructive in the land, but there's also a cycle to this, a similar pattern in how uh, the strikes are introduced and how much detail is given. So we have 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and then 7 through 9. In this first strike, Moses meets Pharaoh early in the morning. Um, there's a longer description on what happens. And that's true for number 4 and number 7. Uh, the third strike, there's almost no description at all, no introduction. The Lord says, do this, and that's what Moses does. Well, that's consistent with number 6 and number 9. So you see the cycle um, that we uh, find there. So that's, that's the basis. And this morning we'll look at strikes one through three and uh, some of the things that we can learn uh, from the signs of God's sovereignty over the water, over the land, over the air. You, you think after three strikes, you know, strike three, Pharaoh, that he would get it. Um, but it's going to take much more than that from the outstretched hand of the Lord. So for each of these strikes, the signs of God's sovereignty um, I want us to, to, to listen, how they're, how they're introduced, what is heard for us to look, and then the response piece, uh, learning. So L cubed, listen, look, and learn um, from the characters here. And the first strike is upon the waters of Egypt, the water of Egypt. Um, there's not a lot of water in Egypt. And so um, most of it comes from that really big river that we associate with Egypt as soon as we learn that Egypt is a place from the Nile River, a place that was revered by the Egyptians. It really was their source of life, the very basis for their prosperity, the basis for their economy, all came from the Nile. So the Lord is going to, to strike, He's going to overpower and control what they consider to be the most important to their livelihood. Listen to what the Lord tells Pharaoh through Moses, verse 16. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. So God claims rightful ownership. These people do not belong to Pharaoh. They belong to him. He is their true master. So for Pharaoh, he's, he's exercising a real control that he doesn't have, abusing that control over God's chosen people. 
So the people of Israel will know that he is God, but so will the people of Egypt. So will all the nations. Remember how Pharaoh first responded. Okay. Um, he said, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice. I do not know the Lord. So these strikes in Egypt and the rest of the Exodus event that we'll read is, is going to answer that. It's going to make that very clear. This is the Lord with all power and glory. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile shall stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Is Pharaoh listening? He's just heard the warning. And he knows why what is about to happen is going to happen. So Aaron stretched out his hand and the Lord strikes the Nile. This is power not from Moses or Aaron. It is from God. It's the strike against the water. Verse 25 affirms that it's from the hand of the Lord. Now, as we look at the river, one of the big questions here is, you know, was this really blood or did the Lord you know, make the river look like blood? And the supernatural part was actually the, the death of all of the fish and not being able to use the water. Um, and I'll say right at the outset here that uh, many, including some very astute scholars, they try and explain the strikes against Egypt as naturally occurring events in that region. Uh, and that God timed uh, these strikes, or maybe even magnified what would normally be expected naturally uh, during this time. For example, a really bad flooding of the Nile mixed with the soil surrounding it makes it look like blood. And because of that, the, you know, all the frogs started leaving the river and were spreading across the land. Well, then the frogs die and that means the insects come and so forth. Just a, a way of uh, explaining that. And it gets much more complicated. but um, you know, It's an interesting read, but I, I do not think it is biblically compelling. Um, the text itself, what we find other parts of the story, help us with this. Um, there are places in the Bible where blood, and the word we have to describe blood, is used to describe the, the red color of blood. Uh, we go to 2 Kings chapter 3 as an example. People of Moab see the, the waters look like blood. They said a great battle has been won, and they go down there. Well, it just looked like it, and the Israelites squashed them. Um, prophecy in Joel chapter 2. There's some uses in the Psalms as well. But the context typically removes the confusion. Um, we don't find a comparison or any likeness in this context. Um, the water turned into blood. Uh, can't miss the preposition here. It's used with the same emphasis in Psalm 78 and Psalm 105. Okay, it was in or against every, every vessel of wood or stone. Now that is hard to explain with a river that's just flooding. Um, this was blood. Think of John chapter 2 and Jesus. This is that first sign 
His sovereignty in Cana turns the water into wine. It wasn't just divine food coloring. It was real wine, the best of the party. There was a transformation there. Um, now, if, if this was divine food coloring, if we were to say, if, if that was true in the Nile, that would make it a little easier for the magicians to manipulate or duplicate, you know, drop a little coloring into some water, make it look like blood. Uh, but maybe there was some supernatural influence that produced some blood. Um, but notice what they can't do. What they can never do. Okay, they cannot change what God has done. They cannot overrule it. They cannot undo it in any way. They can only imitate and actually add to the plague. You notice that when you read the magicians do that? Well, they can add to the plague, make it worse, or at least appear to make it look worse. But they have no power to undo what God has done. Uh, but it was... It was power enough to convince uh, Pharaoh. Verse 23, it says, He went into his house and he did not take this to heart. So that moves us into the response piece here, the learning part. Pharaoh is unmoved. Um, He could go into his house, he could separate himself from this strike. I mean, his water is going to be brought to him anyway. Um, But how does it affect the rest of Egypt? Verse 24, And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So it's devastating for the people. You know, there was a workaround to this. I mean, it's not completely devastating. It's not completely destructive. But it's a major inconvenience for them to have to dig new wells. Anything on the surface was unusable. So for the people, what they trusted for, for life, this, this false god is taken away. The very life force of Egypt is rendered powerless. And it is now lifeblood under the power and control of the Lord. He is the provider. He is the sustainer of all life. He'll, he'll show us that He is. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe that our God is the sustainer of life? Do we trust Him fully to provide for what we need? Or do we look to Him to just assist in providing for what we trust in for life? I was thinking, what if the Arkansas River just became unusable? I mean, that would have a major impact on some things, right? It wouldn't be devastating. I was thinking of Josh Childress. He'd probably have to find another job. There'd be no barge traffic. We have to move those resources somewhere else. But it would certainly change some things about our livelihood living in this area. What are we most dependent on in this land? What do you depend on the most for a life of peace and a life of prosperity. Let's not be surprised if the Lord strikes that for His glory. Our peace and prosperity must be in Him. We must see Him as the giver of life, not look for life in His gifts. So we move from water to land. This is strike two. We're told that seven days passed before Moses goes to Pharaoh again. That's a helpful detail in verse 25 because it tells us maybe why we don't have that detail in the rest of the strikes against Egypt. There's a feature in ancient Near East storytelling and in that narrative that if there was a longer story or a story that had repetitive events in a sequence that if something was stated up front, you didn't have to repeat it all the way through. 
So in effect saying, it kept on happening like this, or very, very close to this, so we don't need to keep saying it. So that means that we can reasonably assume that there were not weeks and months and months between each of these plagues. Maybe about a week, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Um, so to say that all the, these signs and wonders in Egypt took place over the course of a few months, certainly less than a year, as most uh, conservative commentators would agree, uh, that's quite reasonable um, based upon what we have here. So let's listen again to what the Lord says to Pharaoh. We don't know what time of day it is. Moses is meeting him in the court or palace, which again is repeated in, in uh, Plague 5 and 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. So this is now the third time that Pharaoh has heard this. The people of Israel are to be freed so that they can serve the Lord. Their true master. Worship Him in the way that He requires to be worshipped. So all of these signs. You know, Pharaoh should be hearing this by now. I hope we're hearing this by now. That worship is the goal. It's the goal behind all of the strikes in Egypt. And we're going to read throughout the rest of the Exodus event. And we can argue to the end of redemptive history. To know the Lord and to worship Him. So listen to the, the detail that's given. Uh, the Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So at the command of the Lord, it happens. Um, frogs in places that you would never expect frogs to be. Um, you, know, you, you open the oven, frog flambe, frog loaf. You ever had that? The Egyptians had that. Um, hope you don't move around too much while you sleep. You know, you roll one direction. Um, you know, they were on the ground on mats. They didn't have mattresses like we do now. That's not how they slept. But yeah, it's pretty gross. Um, and not just for the people of, Israel, of, of Egypt. Did you catch that part? Who specifically? This is going to touch Pharaoh. He couldn't hide from this. He couldn't just go back into his house and ignore this. this is, these, these frogs are going to be uh, by him as well. A major irritation uh, for him as well as the people. And uh, as, as you might expect, among the pantheon of gods, there is a frog goddess in Egypt, a symbol of fertility among the people. You have to smile at this. And one of the names associated with the worship of these creatures, um, of the frogs, was Hapi, or Happy. Um, so they're not going to start just squashing the frogs. They're going to you know, have to, to deal with all these Hapis around Egypt. Um, his magicians do the same. They only add to the problem. Um, you know, whether Pharaoh is convinced or not, uh, he can't rely on them to do anything about this, so he turns to Moses. Um, this is where we move to that learning piece again, how he responds. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So it sounds like there's a little progress here for Pharaoh. He recognizes 
that the God of Israel has the power that neither he nor his magicians, chanters, have. If something is going to be done, then the Lord has to be the one uh, to do this. But it's far from a real saving understanding of who the Lord is. He's using his name, that's a good start. But he has no intention of turning to the Lord. He's... He makes. He actually goes to Moses and has Moses pray on his behalf, not to not to pray for him, but just to remove the problem. So there's a lot more superstition here than actual spirituality in the heart of of prayer. I mean, we know this from our own experiences that we'll make promises, we'll say things if we're in a pinch, if we're in a hard spot. I'm thinking of Martin Luther, you know, in that storm, he says, "Lord, I'll, I'll be a monk. I'll be a monk." Now, he followed through on that promise. Um, we see Pharaoh does not. Uh, when there's just a little bit of a relief, he forgot all about his promise. It's just expedient for him at the time. Um, so I, this really shows us that we can know about God. People can know information about God. And they may even consider the importance of prayer and, and the need to pray, but they don't know how to pray or, or want to pray. Or even what to pray. It kind of becomes this charm that you pull out and uh, this, this alien thing to them. Um, it's important for us to, to remember that our sovereign God hears the cries of all people. He hears that, that cry in the foxhole. God save me. And time and time again we see His, His mercy. He hears the cries of all, but not in the same way He hears the cries of his children. Later in the story, the people of Israel, they're crying out in exile. And Jeremiah assures them that the Lord has not abandoned them, that he has a plan for them. And he says, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. To his children, God is their heavenly Father. They, they look to Him, they, they trust Him, they rest in Him. They want to praise Him, they want to confess their need for Him, and thank Him for His grace. Their hearts are inclined to this. But for, for the one who acknowledges God, who has not surrendered to Him in faith as Lord, then there, there's going to be little desire, even motivation to pray. And when they do cry out, it's typically for something, for God to give them something. You know, if, we're, if we're good enough, according to our own standard, then God can owe us these things, right? Or maybe we're in a pinch and we're, we haven't measured up according to our standard, and so, well, God is merciful, so He must give me this help that I pray for. Um, so prayer is a good test. Um, it's a good pulse check on, on our spiritual condition. We can learn a lot about uh, the heart condition of others through prayer. Do you want to pray? Do you have freedom to pray? I uh, love the freedom that Moses has in prayer as he intercedes for Pharaoh. It actually gives him the choice on when he would like Moses to pray for relief. You think, why would he do this? But this is going to be something that will be in, unmistakable for Pharaoh. If Pharaoh names the time and then the frog machine stops at that time, then there could be no question that this is by the hand of God. 
It's something the Lord doesn't tell Moses. Moses prays in faith, trusting that the Lord would do as he asks. Praying for relief for his enemy. Lord Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Luke 6, Matthew 5, we're to pray for them. Pray for those who mistreat us. We share in the sufferings of our Savior. So the frogs die, they gathered them in heaps, the land stank. You know, that's something else we can learn uh, from this, which is consistent for all the strikes in Egypt, is that you know, all the people in the land are irritated by this. They're all burdened by the rebellion of Pharaoh. Okay, our stubbornness, our sin, will affect those around us. Um, it's going to bring pain. It will bring trouble on others. And sometimes we, and in our sin, we sin privately, but it's never a private matter. Every sin, it not only hurts us, it hurts the body of Christ. So as we love the Lord and want to walk in obedience to Him, we, we love each other well by turning in repentance. We love each other well by confessing our sin, knowing how it affects us, pursuing holiness. So the Lord strikes the water, land, and now the air. Uh, and there's not much to listen to for this strike, so it's a pretty easy subpoint. Uh, we're not given a time. Moses doesn't meet with Pharaoh. Um, God says, do it, in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And most of our English translations will keep that uh, gnats language there. A very irritating, biting insect. Um, something that just swarms around you. There's no way to get away from it. There were a lot of gnats I was brushing away yesterday working outside, but nothing like this. We might think of mosquitoes as being more of an irritation, something that we're you know, trying to get rid of. Um, many believe this was a form of lice, something that was on the people, not just buzzing around, but actually on the people and on the animals, um, as prevalent as the dust of the land. Um, I mentioned earlier that it's good to go back and read the, the details of these events so you can catch... The emphasis for this strike, two of the four verses focus on the magicians of Egypt and how they could not duplicate this sign. That's what Moses is trying to draw out here. That they, not only had they met their match, but they were no match to begin with for the Lord. Um, We don't know how long they tried to manipulate a swarm of of insects, but they, they realize that this is a power beyond them. This is the finger of God, they say to Pharaoh. Um, that's not a profession of faith. They're, just, they're convinced that this is, in fact, a miracle, clearly implying that the previous strikes were also by his hand, the finger of God. Pharaoh, are you listening? Um, we don't know how or when this plague came to an end, but Pharaoh was not listening. His heart was was hardened. He doesn't go back to Moses for help. We don't hear him speak at all uh, in this plague. So we'll talk more about the hardening and the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart uh, during the next cycle. But it's clear that the Lord had oversight, had ordained this response. He is sovereign and Pharaoh is responsible. I mean, let's just consider the patience of our God, the long-suffering of God. I mean, here's the exhibit A, B, and C of this, and it's just going to keep going. 
He strikes Egypt, the gods of Egypt, in judgment. But this judgment just magnifies His mercy. There is an opportunity to turn, an opportunity to obey, but Pharaoh refuses. God is patient, but He will judge. He must judge. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, but He is is just and His anger is perfectly righteous. So we know that there will not be an infinite amount of second chances for the heart that rebels against God and His Word. So these strikes, these signs of, of God's sovereignty, they really are a call to repentance, a call to give Him glory, to worship Him now, in these last days. And the Exodus is a, is a paradigm for God's deliverance, His redeeming work in Jesus, but it's also showing us a picture of that judgment that is yet to come, that will come before our King returns. We see this powerfully in the revelation given to John, where the appointed angels, they take the bowls of God's wrath and they pour them out on His creation. This is in Revelation 16. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And a few verses later, John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, And out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. This should strike fear in those who reject the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Who do not repent and give Him glory. But now is a favorable time. May 6, 2018, 12.05. Now is the day of salvation. Receive this grace. And turn to God in repentance and faith. And for those who trust in God, who know Him in the person and work of Christ, then these strikes, this judgment is a comfort. That God has not given us what we deserve. It's an assurance that, that our Deliverer has come, that He is coming again. That all wrongs will be righted. Every injustice will be corrected. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more death. Brothers and sisters, the power to atone for your sin and for mine and to raise us to life again in Jesus, that's the finger of God. That's the finger of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we marvel at your grace, that you are God, infinite in mercy. You are holy and just. and We see your mercy and your justice extended in this passage and extended to us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this good word. Work it in our hearts. Lord, you have fed us through your word and now you feed us at your table. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.